Welcome to this extra reflection from the National Galleries of Scotland. I'm Ewan Bremner, and in these shorter episodes, we dive into another aspect of the artists and ideas from our interviews. Nick Tromans is a lecturer in art history at Christie's Education. He's also the author of Richard Dad, The Artist and the Asylum, which tells Dad's story. Next, we hear the extended interview about the life of this fascinating artist. Richard Dowd was born in Kent in 1817, so a couple of hundred years ago. He was someone destined for great things as a painter, as an artist. He had a very, very successful early career as a very young man. He moved from his home in Kent to the centre of London, became a student at the Royal Academy schools, and very quickly was uh, singled out as being a likely leader of the future. Other artists, young artist students, gathered around him. His pictures started to be exhibited at the main London art exhibitions, also out in places like Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool. And more importantly, they started to sell. So really at a very young age, in his early 20s, he was a successful, self-sufficient painter with a long list of clients, getting his pictures exhibited and reviewed. In other words, his was the early kind of career that just about every artist of that age would have aspired to, to, to emulate. He had what you would call, if he were a musician, uh, a classical education, by which I mean very standard, very conventional, he, uh, the, the, the leading institutions. And when he wasn't studying, say, the life model at the Royal Academy, he would be down at the British Museum making copies of the Elgin Marble, studying Greek sculpture. He would have studied the old masters in the National Gallery. So he had a very, very highbrow professional beginning. But yeah, he also did something which, to be honest, is something that art students tend to do. I don't think it's so terribly rare that if you're a bit of a hotshot and you're singled out as perhaps being um, amongst the leading figures of your generation, you very quickly become a bit impatient. And instead of waiting for the teachers to tell you what to think or what to do or what to paint, you gather around you a group of like-minded friends and you give yourself a sort of name. I mean, the most famous example is the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood of the 1840s. This is just a few years before that. And he gathered around himself a group of friends who became known as the clique which is essentially just meaning, you know, they were a gang, a little posse of, of young men who were getting rather beyond themselves in terms of their ambition. In fact, most of them did go on to successful careers as, as artists. But it was Dad who was seen as the leader, the real one with the sharp edge, with the real sense of where he was going. One of the things that followed from Dad's relative great prominence as a young man is that uh, he, his name was banded around by um, professionals, by older artists. And when a rather, at that time, famous Welsh lawyer was looking for a young artist to accompany him on a Middle Eastern tour to basically set down in drawings the images of places that they had travelled through, Richard Dow was recommended to him. And in 1842, they uh, set off together these two men, Thomas Phillips was the name of the lawyer with Richard Dad, and they went on this incredible whistle-stop tour of the Eastern Mediterranean, usually on horseback, and they would have gone all the way through Italy, through France, through Switzerland, then down all the way through Turkey, through what is now Israel, uh, the Palestinian territories, up and then down the Nile, a huge, huge trip, and then tracking all the way back again through Europe, all within less than a year. So a real non-stop tour, and the list of sites they visited, modern cities, ancient cities, biblical cities, places of religious historical interest, places of picturesque natural beauty. I mean, the list is just epic. 
And sadly, it was during this visit, towards the end, when the two men were on their return journey in, in Rome, that Dad first showed signs of what was to eventually become clear was a serious mental illness. One of the great paradoxes of trying to understand Dad is that on one hand, it's clear that there was some kind of family tendency towards mental illness. He had a brother who was eventually in the same hospital as him, Bethlehem Hospital. He had a sister who was put in an asylum up in Scotland. And there are suggestions that there was actually a fourth sibling who also suffered severe mental illness. So clearly something either in their genes or in their shared upbringing had made, sadly, the set of siblings disposed to some kind of mental illness. But also, totally aside from that, as a very young artist, Richard Dad had shown an interest in scenes of figures from literature and from plays, dramas, Shakespeare, who were either really or were affecting madness. So he was very interested in Manfred, the figure of this kind of crazed existentialist uh, romantic hero from Byron. He was interested in Don Quixote. And above all, he was fascinated, even obsessed by, A Midsummer Night's Dream. So on one hand, he seemed to be an artist who had an intellectual interest in madness. At the same time, unknown to him, presumably at that point, there was a family, as I say, disposition that was to show itself towards mental illness. When he began to disturb his travelling companion, Thomas Phillips, it was in Rome. And as can be the case with psychoses and schizophrenic-type illnesses, the sufferer, in this case Dad, started to believe that he himself had some kind of special relationship with figures of absolute power. So he started to think that the Pope, for instance, really needed to be murdered. And it was his job to try and do that. He also started to believe in a kind of conspiracy of those in power, whereby everything that was wrong in modern-day Italy was the fault of the state and the fault of the church, and that you know someone was doing something terrible to somebody else, and he, Dad, had to do something about it. So when Dad came back to England in 1843, he started to behave very, very strangely. He became reclusive. He became suspicious. The only uh, person who really stood close by him was his father. He lost his mother earlier as a child. And sadly, eventually, Dad turned upon his father with a knife when they were walking together in a park in Kent uh, near where uh, Dad had grown up uh, as a child. His father was killed. And what is clear, and this led to legal complications, was that Dad had very carefully planned the murder. This was not a spontaneous outburst uh, of, of paranoid um, of fear. It was, on the contrary, a very carefully planned execution. And Dad had, in fact, gone to the trouble of getting himself a passport, a, a change of clothes, and he fled uh, very efficiently, without being captured, from the site of the murder to France. And it was near Paris that he was eventually apprehended. Immediately, it was pretty clear to the authorities that, well, A, he was extremely dangerous because he had this knife on him that he seemed to be keen to use on people when, um, when the fancy took him, but also that he was mentally ill to quite a severe extent. So he was placed in the care of an asylum north of Paris. He stayed there for a year because it took that long for the paperwork to go through to extradite him back to England. When that took place, he went to a pre-trial hearing. At that hearing, it was again totally clear to the authorities that he was someone who sadly was suffering from a severe form of breakdown, from a severe series of delusions, that he was not fit to stand trial, despite having, as I say, carefully planned the killing of his father. And therefore, he was placed 
1844 at Her Majesty's pleasure indefinitely as a criminal lunatic. And that meant that he was dispatched to Bethlehem Hospital in Lambeth, um, to a building that still survives, in fact, but now is the Imperial War Museum. And Dad remained a patient there from 1844 uh, for 20 years till 1864 as a member of this community of special patients who were there because they were not only mentally ill, but they were also criminal. So the criminal lunatic department. And still today, if you want to read up on Dad's records, you know, search the archives for evidence of what his life was like as a patient, you have to look up the big books that have criminal lunatic written all over them. When Dad arrived in 1844 as a patient, he was put under the care of one of the visiting physicians, uh, a man called Monroe, who was the son and grandson, and in fact great-grandson of another whole series of Monroes who'd run Bethlehem Hospital for many, many, many years, or been involved, I should say, in, in the hospital for many, many, many years. And that doctor really didn't believe in curing mental illness. He believed in looking after uh, patients, being kind to them, being supportive of them, of their needs. But the idea that you could somehow apply a leech or offer them some kind of drug was not part of the therapeutics of the period. And so therefore, there wasn't really much to say. And so there were no medical records really at all kept about Dad from his entry into the hospital in 1844 to 1852, which was a crucial year in the history of the hospital when there was a kind of revolution of management uh, and the state inspectors insisted on a complete reform of the hospital. Bethlehem Hospital had existed since the Middle Ages and was an independent charity and remained so right down to the founding of the NHS in the mid-20th century. And so it had always been able to argue that it was not under the jurisdiction of any state inspector. But around 1850, they decided they'd had enough of this and they were going to inspect the hospital and they were going to start having a say in how it was run. We don't know too much about how he acquired his painting equipment. After all, it wasn't an enormously expensive kit uh, of all the kind of professions you might choose to continue to follow in a hospital. Uh, painting is one of the cheaper ones. His family supported him to a limited degree. His friends tried to visit him, but he does not appear to have really recognized them or acknowledged them. And the hospital, we must remember, was a charity, a very conspicuous, well-known, long-standing City of London charity that was very good at promoting itself as being a good-hearted, open-minded charity and to which people were keen to give with which people were happy to be associated. So we know, for instance, that art dealers were very happy to give the sculptures and prints that they couldn't sell to Bethlehem to decorate the corridors and wards of the hospital. So on that level, there was a great deal of of generosity and support from the outside world, and Dad getting his hands on painting equipment wasn't, wasn't, wasn't difficult. Bethlehem, like all large asylums of this period, believed in something that was, to use a general expression, known as moral therapy. And moral therapy essentially had to do with the patient being encouraged to help him or herself by doing things which helped them regain self-respect and reform some kind of connection with the world. So a great example would be, would be gardening, for instance. You, know, you get out in the garden, you see how the world works, you see how the process of generation functions, and you are reconnected, you get some exercise. Another one might be, for the women patients particularly, some kind of handiwork, some kind of um, uh, needlework, whereby they have to control their hands, they have to make plans, they have to think carefully about what they're doing. And for an artist like Dad, the obvious thing was to set him 
back to work again. So after a few years, especially after this revolution in management, which we talked about, the doctors in charge of dad felt that, well, what could be better than to simply say to him, well, you know that play that you used to love and that you used to illustrate before you became ill, The Midsummer Night's Dream, why not please paint me a picture? That's what one of the doctors did. And when that was finished, one of the other senior staff members said, well, could I please have another one? And this time, the second picture was to be based on the famous Queen Mab speech by Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet. So they were trying to get Dad to recover some of the the mindset that he would have had as a successful uh, young man before he fell into illness. One thing that we do not know much about, and which we probably never will know about, is how far these sympathetic doctors were able to hold conversations with Dad. One of the doctors, Dr. Charles Hood, who became the first resident physician at Bethlehem after the early 1850s, says of Dad in one of his case notes that he is often a very agreeable and intelligent conversational companion suggesting that he would often sit down and chat with Dad, although we do know from other reports that Dad's conversation wasn't enormously clear and often jumped kind of crab-like from subject to subject. And it seems to me that Morrison would surely have at least sought to talk to Dad about his art, and clearly the two men got on well because we know that Dad painted this wonderful portrait of Morrison that is now in the collection of the National Galleries of Scotland, showing him in the year of his retirement back at his home at Ankerfield, not far from Edinburgh. And there are tantalising but, but, but hard to confirm reports of Morrison buying, collecting watercolours by Dad. One interesting thing to, to um, observe is that Morrison, being this rather older, grander, physician used to working in private medicine didn't frankly get along very well with these big public asylums you know his idea of an asylum was his own consulting room one-on-one you know you try and help your patients human being to human being the idea of herding as he perhaps would have felt it hundreds of people into a minimally staffed drafty great big building you know he was skeptical about that Um, And equally, I think the authorities at Bethlehem would have been sceptical about someone like Morrison, who to them would have been a sort of a figure from a different earlier age. So, I mean, one thing that we, we know is that Morrison was told at one point, slightly stiffly by the hospital authorities, that no more works of dad's were to leave Bethlehem, implying that Morrison had been not smuggling dad's works out, but at least buying them or taking them out. And on the subject of paying, that's an interesting one. We do know from a note that Morrison makes in his diary that at one point, Morrison sends a very small amount of money to one of the nurses at Bethlehem so that the nurse can buy apples for dad. Now, whether that's just a good old-fashioned benevolent gentleman physician thinking that his patient looked a bit peaky and could do with a bit more fruit, or whether that was in some way a quasi-payment for the work that Morrison was acquiring is not clear. How well was Dad known? His art ceased to be well known. He was highly productive whilst he was a patient for over 40 years. He continued to make paintings and especially watercolours in in pretty substantial numbers, maybe at about, roughly speaking, the same rate, maybe a little bit less than a professional artist would have done. Uh, So he was working hard. And those works did go out into the world. Collectors bought them. They ended up on the art market. But they were never gathered together. So, you know, nobody was ever really able to see more than one or two at a time. So nobody was able to get a sense of the artist's overall career. People knew where he was. 
people knew where to find him if they wanted to find him, but not many people did. It was really journalists who wanted a story who would be the ones to visit him. To put the question really crudely, how far was Richard Dadd's art itself mad is, is the $60,000 question. It is now, I think, rightly unfashionable to try to look at anyone's art and say, aha, here you can see lots of squiggly lines, or here you can see lots of violent colours. This patient is clearly mad, or this artist is clearly a lunatic. You know, that way of trying to diagnose from an image is, as I say, rightly considered to be rather naive and goes back to a, a period when outsider art or asylum art or psychotic art or mad art or the art of the insane were all highly romanticized. And yes, <laughs> you look at some of Dad's works and you can't help feeling that somewhere in these works there are reflections of a changed brain. Now, it would take a very brave person to say that they'd worked this out and they'd correlated the art to the illness. But in my book, for instance, I suggest, and I don't think this is massively original, but in some of his works on a small scale, he executes them as miniatures with tiny, tiny brushes, with a work so fine, a detailed use of lines so incredibly precise that you can't believe that it was possible without a microscope. And at the same time, in these tiny works, he will evoke, using perspective and landscapes and mountains and huge buildings, the most epic, sublime scale. So it's almost as if the middle distance, the human scale, the looking at the world and trying to understand the world in proportion to one's own body, which is the, 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 the kind of characteristic human way of trying to interpret space uh, and time, has somehow been lost. And instead, he's fascinated by the minute and by the spectacular. Uh, now, you could argue that that is a reflection of his illness, but equally valid, you might say, well, this is just an artist who didn't have a public, who didn't have critics telling him how he could or shouldn't paint. So he could do what he wanted, and this is what he wanted to do. So I remain very sceptical about trying to diagnose a particular kind of illness from his art. I also found Dad a very, very funny artist. Now, we've been talking about murder and cruelty and insanity and being locked up in you know horrible brick buildings for decades. But maybe it's a problem with me, but his works often make me laugh out loud. And I really find it hard to think of many other 19th century paintings that, that, that do that. He has a very cruel often, not always cruel, but often cruel, slightly sarcastic sense of humor. He was perfectly aware, at least by the later part of his life, that he, of what he was, an enormously gifted creative person who had failed, who had ended up not achieving any of the things that he, he could and should have done. And he makes art about failure. And I just think that sometimes that can be enormously creative and so refreshing after the kind of much more standard subjects of this period. And it's one of the reasons why Dad continues to speak, I think, across the generations and is so popular today amongst people who are otherwise maybe not that interested in art. Because he seems to have been able to use imagery to latch onto a certain approach to life, attitude towards life, which is somehow darkly pessimistic, and yet at the same time, uh, very witty and very beautiful. Thanks for downloading this bonus episode of Reflections, Art, Life and Love. You can listen to the rest of the series by subscribing on your podcast app. And why not find out more about the artworks on the website, nationalgalleries.org.